Hello and welcome to the Weekend Wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and it is Sunday the 18th of June in the year 2023. And I hope wherever you are around Australia and indeed around the world, you're having a wonderful day, evening, night, whenever you might be listening to our podcast today. Now, we have got some questions from listeners that I will address towards the end of the show. There's some interesting questions, some of them can be grouped together a little bit. Some of them stand alone. Tune in till the very end and you can hear them. If you've got questions you'd like me to try and answer for you, you can go send an email to theweekonwednesday at gmail.com. You can also submit them via our Facebook page and you can even try Twitter if it doesn't collapse on you. Of course, since we last spoke on Wednesday with Van, there has been a huge amount happen in Australian politics. Most of it not particularly pleasant, although there has been some good news, which I'll get to as well. On Wednesday, Van and I talked about how the Liberals were trying to flood the zone. This is a term made famous by Steve Bannon, former advisor to Donald Trump and well-known white nationalist supremacist, generally not very good guy, uh, that is a, a tactic used to deflect when you're not doing particularly well. It's a tactic used primarily by conservative parties when they start to lose their traditional policy base. In the case of the Liberals here in Australia, polling recently shows that people no longer believe that the Liberals or the Liberal Nationals or the Coalition or the LNP, whatever you want to call them, are the best group of politicians to manage our economy. Not just on wages, where Labor has traditionally done a little bit better, but right across the board. So whether it's managing interest rates, whether it's managing national debt, whether it's managing national spending, and of course on wages, Labor is beating the coalition. This is a huge blow for the ambitions of Peter Dutton and his coalition, because at the same time, their polling numbers are absolutely in the toilet, particularly among younger people and even more so among women. So how did Peter Dutton respond to this? Well, of course, you can listen to the last episode of the week on Wednesday to hear about how they started the week. You can also check out Insiders, where I have to say I was disappointed to once again see a representative of the billionaire-owned media on the panel. There are enough good quality journalists at the ABC, SBS, and independent media outlets to not have to rely on Kerry Stokes and Rupert Murdoch serving up spivs for the panel. Now, I didn't watch Insiders, and I'm sure that individual is a very well-qualified and excellent journalist. That's not the point. The point here is that we have a whole structure in our media that is constantly and determined to undermine public broadcasting, determined to undermine public journalism has actively, and I'm not suggesting this particular individual who was on the panel today has done this, but certainly, certainly the outlets that they're engaged with have actively undermined the idea of truth in journalism and have actively undermined a robust political discussion. Seven West Media, of course, owned by the Stokes family, was a huge supporter of Ben Robert Smith and and helped support and fund both his lifestyle and his 
uh, his defamation case. So it just boggles my mind that the ABC would continue to have these people on these panels. And to top it off, you might be aware that Q&A is currently running a question using a news.com uh, article as the basis for uh, trying to elicit responses from people. Of course, news.com, owned by the Murdochs, is absolutely one of those outlets uh, that I would classify as being anti-journalism. So anyway, insiders had the discussion about what happened during the course of the week. They had uh, Bridget McKenzie, National Party Senator, on. Another point that I'd raise about insiders is they have consistently had a stream of non-government uh, members on. They've had Bridget McKenzie, they've had Max Chandler-Marr, they've had uh, Lydia Thorpe, uh, they've had Monique Ryan. Uh, I think the last person, they had Angus Taylor. I think the last person they might have had was Katie Gallagher, Katie Gallagher six or eight weeks ago, um, uh, possibly Jim Chalmers at the budget. It, it, it's been such a long time, it's genuinely hard to remember. Of course, since Wednesday, the liberal strategy of flooding the zone uh, to talk about uh, who did or didn't know what about uh, Brittany Higgins and Bruce Lehrman and what did or didn't happen in Parliament House has totally flipped on its head. And it's flipped on its head because Senator Lydia Thorpe, someone who, if you listen to the show regularly, you know I'm not a huge fan of, did stand up in the Senate and quite bravely made an accusation uh, against uh, Senator David Vann, who is a fellow Victorian senator but from the Liberal Party, or at least he was from the Liberal Party. Uh, she said that he had sexually assaulted her. She withdrew that allegation uh, the next day. However, Amanda Stoker, former LNP senator from Queensland, issued a statement also alleging that David Van had sexually assaulted her and provided quite significant details. David Van again denies that he has done anything wrong. Peter Dutton gave a press conference where he said that he was aware of other circumstances where David Van, Senator Van, had acted inappropriately and had told him that he could no longer sit with the Liberal Party and that he should resign. Now, I'm not sure what Peter Dutton meant when he said resign, whether he meant to resign from the Senate or whether he meant to resign from the Liberal Party. Senator Van has decided to resign from the Liberal Party as of yesterday, issuing a statement saying that he still claims to have done nothing wrong. Uh, he says the Liberal Party has not engaged in due process uh, and that he rejects these allegations made against him, but that he will sit as an independent senator. So what's the upshot of all of this? Well, the upshot is this. Van will continue to vote with the Liberal Party probably 99.99% of the time, and he will get extra staff, which is a bit gross. It is the duty of every employer in every state and territory across the Commonwealth to provide a safe working environment for all employees. Now, what's happened in the parliament this week has been appalling to watch. And I know many, many people who have experienced sexual violence have been re-traumatised by 
the goings-on in Parliament. I just want to remind people that Labor and the Labor movement have fought consistently to protect people at work and have made it an obligation of employers to provide a workplace free of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. Those laws came about because the union movement campaigned for it, particularly women in the union movement campaigned for it, and the Labor government passed those laws. It is apparent to anyone, anyone with half a brain, that if women who are senators, if women who are senators cannot be guaranteed their safety from men in Parliament, we must make sure, we must make sure that we band together, that we stick together. Because if it's happening there, it could be happening anywhere and everywhere. You know, we always tell people to join their union and there are many, many reasons, whether it's for increased wages, increased job security, more of a say in what happens in your work, lots of reasons to join your union. The number one reason to join is because together we make our workplaces safer. By standing together, whether it's stopping dangerous dusts in in the air that might kill us, or whether it's making sure that sexual predators are not able to lurk the halls and roam the cubicles where we work. Joining your union is a way of standing together. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. You can join now, you can join online. It's so important. I mean, if anything, the last week has shown just how important it is for people to stick together. You know, as I say, I'm not a big fan of Lydia Thorpe. I I don't think that in terms of policy, in terms of her political approach, I have lots of reasons why I don't think Lydia Thorpe is a very good senator, but absolutely has my solidarity when it comes to this issue. Same with Amanda Stoker. I have no time for Amanda Stoker's position on just about any form of policy. But it is not okay. It is not appropriate for this to happen to anyone, regardless of their political affiliation. And anyone who does this sort of behaviour has no place anywhere in a position of any power or influence and certainly shouldn't be deciding on laws, including laws about how our workplaces operate, how laws in relation to sexual assault operate, and how we keep people safe. It's a bit like putting a fox in the hen house. Look, Senator Van has denied all allegations and, of course, is entitled to the presumption of innocence. But this is now multiple people from different political parties making very similar accusations. Bridget McKenzie was asked about it on Insiders and said she was aware of rumours. Bridget McKenzie, of course, is a National Party senator for Victoria as well. It's quite stunning, quite, and I mean stunning in terms of I am stunned, not as in any other sort of positive element. It is a, it is a 
horrible thing to have happened. Look, there is still another week of Parliament. Senator Van will be on the crossbench. Who knows if he'll have his extra staff by next week. I somewhat doubt it. He's only just resigned from the Liberal Party. Who knows? Maybe he will resign. Although I was discussing this with Van Battam, my wife, your friend, uh, this morning. And, of course, one of the great problems of the current crop of Liberal slash LMP parliamentarians is their unemployability. Where do they go? You know, when the Morrison uh, government was in power uh, and influencing the Abbott government and the Turnbull government, they were able to stack things like the AAT and various government boards with failed MPs and senators. The Australia Post has a former member for Ballarat on it, um, funnily enough. Uh, you know, they even Sarah Henderson, who lost Kerangamite, got put into the Senate. You know, this kind of... Uh, pee and cup game that they play where they just move people around. Well, it used to be that the LMP had some sort of business background or pastoralists or something, but I'm not sure what uh, Senator Van would go back to. I don't know how he would be employed. As I understand it, Christian Porter is a barrister again. I, I think that's having some success or mixed success. I think there's uh, uh, lambing up in Gold Coast, I think, has uh, tried to go back to being a plastic surgeon or whatever kind of um, sort of uh, surgical stuff he did, but I think he struggled with that. You know, and of course, Amanda Stoker seems to be once again commentating on Sky After Dark. So, you know, who knows? Who knows how this will play out? But we have to make our workplaces safe for all people, and clearly, while the parliament is unsafe, many, many other workplaces will be unsafe too. So next week, there is still a big piece of legislation that we have to try and get through the Senate, and of course, I'm talking here about the HAF, the Housing Australia Affordability Fund. This is the $10 billion fund that is going to be invested to generate returns to be used to build social and affordable housing. This is a model that works in other places. It's a model that works for other things. It's a model that ensures against the return of a Liberal government, which unfortunately, dear friends and comrades, is a likely outcome at some stage in our lifetimes. Now, of course, you can see Friendly Geordies has made a video on this as well. Really excellent piece of work uh, by uh, the team there. Basically breaking down why you set up these funds if you are a progressive government. It's to stop conservatives from gutting expenditure and investment in housing. And if you look at the detail, every time Labor's in, we spend more money on housing, and every time the Liberals are in, they cut it to the bone. Now, of course, this policy has been held up in the Senate by the Greens as they have grandstanded their way across the country, including on insiders, which I thought was a disgraceful use of the national broadcaster, just between you and me. But they have continued to hold this up. One of the really funny things that has happened in the last 48 hours is that Anthony Albanese has pointed out that Labor will be investing in partnership with the states and territories 
$2 billion, $2 billion to build or repair new properties or repair existing stock uh, of housing uh, across the country. This is new money. Uh, each state will get $50 million uh, in base funding and then allocated money on a per capita basis. And it should see money out the door within the next fortnight. Now, the Greens have both simultaneously taken credit for this and said that it's not good enough. Typical Greens response to a Labor policy, I have to say. It is in addition to the Housing Affordability Fund. And I want to be really, really clear about this. Labor is increasing its existing uh, housing program from 5.5 billion to 7.5 billion. That is a current program that is that is supporting social and affordable rental homes. It's making them lower cost. It's providing longer term financing to community housing providers. It's allowing homes to be not just built but renovated so they're actually brought up to standard. This is one measure. The Housing Affordability Fund is one measure. This is another measure. There are other measures that Labor is doing around housing as well. It's increasing the depreciation rate from 2.5% to 4% per year for new build-to-rent projects. It's reducing the withholding tax rate for eligible fund payments from managed investment trusts to foreign residents on income for newly constructed residential build-to-rent properties from 30% to 15%. These are all about increasing housing supply. And I note that at the Victorian Labor Conference this weekend, my good friend Dano Bosler uh, moved a resolution about inclusive planning uh, arrangements to stop local governments, often dominated by Greens councillors, from excluding social and affordable housing. And this is, this is a huge deal. This is a huge problem because this is what happens. Not only do the Greens take credit for things they didn't do, they then say, and say they don't go far enough, they then federally campaign for more investment in housing and locally campaign to stop housing being built. There will be local government elections in Victoria in 2024 now, I don't know when they'll be in other states, but I would certainly encourage people, if you really believe in affordable housing, you have to accept that there'll be affordable housing in your neighbourhood. And if you don't want affordable housing in your neighbourhood, or you can't accept that, then shut up. Stop talking about the housing crisis because you don't actually believe in any of the solutions. The solution to affordable housing is not to build it out in the middle of the desert and create new towns where none currently exist. It is to increase the density of our cities. Australia has some of the largest landmass cities in the world and the most sparsely populated. Now, of course, we know that shifting the issue of population growth to outer suburbs, regional cities, is more expensive because we have to upgrade our infrastructure. 
quite frankly, the Greens' position on this is all over the place. Federally, it gets reported as being one thing, when the reality is it's about a dozen different things. Now, there'll also be, by the way, $500 million a year from the Housing Affordability Fund made available to states and territories to build social and affordable rental homes. These are huge investments, huge investments, and we can't continue to see them held up. The longer it's held up, the longer people will wait. Now, I've seen some of the arguments. Oh, even if the Housing Affordability Fund meets its targets, public housing waiting lists will increase. That's that's true. There's no question about that. That's why there are additional programs. That's why Labor's not just relying on the $500 million a year from the Housing Affordability Fund. Labor's investing $7.5 billion, $7.5 billion in building and renovating social and affordable housing. That's why it's making financing social and affordable housing easier. That's why it's entered into the housing uh, accords with superannuation funds and institutional investors to facilitate them investing in housing, particularly in mixed development housing. So important if we want to see communities that are diverse, that benefit from each other's experience and that help each other out. So that's happened in the last uh, 48 hours as well. You know, we've got to actually look at the whole picture here, not just focus on the Greens' talking points. It's a pretty important part of what's actually happening when it comes to housing. Now, there are other things as well, and there are people who want more change, myself among them, changes in terms of uh, how investment properties work, how negative gearing works, uh, changes around the deductibility, perhaps, of interest, uh, incentivizing new builds far more than we do currently over uh, the purchasing of pre-existing stock. And of course, building the infrastructure and creating the job opportunities as well. Lots of lots of work has to be done on housing. Don't get me wrong. It's been left on the shelf for far too, far too long. Look, I'm going to address some of the questions that people have sent through. This is such a great part of the show. This came from someone leaving a review on our uh, on our Apple uh, podcast, uh, saying that could we could we please answer questions uh, from the audience? Uh, and so I want to just give a quick shout out to uh, to Mary Creek. Uh, who left us a five-star review on Apple uh, and tells people to join their union and fantastic work from you, Mary, saying, could you please have a segment uh, where you answer questions? So here are some of the questions. We have a question here that says, uh, they say Phil Lowe lost billions of dollars of Australian money as head of the Reserve Bank. What happened exactly? So we had a couple of questions about the Reserve Bank. As you can imagine at the moment, we've talked a lot about the Reserve Bank, but this is true. The Reserve Bank has on paper uh, recorded a loss of about $37 billion. 
Now, this is because of the way money works. Now, that sounds like a strange answer, right? But essentially, the Reserve Bank borrowed money from itself in order to buy bonds. So it was issuing bonds on the money market that the Reserve Bank would then buy with the money it created. This <laughs> it's a it's kind of like you know uh, money magic, right? People say there's no uh, magic money tree where money just can be materialized. Actually, there is. It's called the Reserve Bank, and that's exactly what they did. Now, what they did was they bought 281 billion dollars worth of bonds during the pandemic. Now, those bonds uh, they effectively bought at a high price and then sold at a lower price in order to inject liquidity into the Australian uh, economy. That means uh, that they, on paper, have lost somewhere between 37 and possibly as much as $54 billion. Now, why did they do that? Well, it encouraged traders to put their money into other parts of the economy, such as investing directly into companies. It sent a signal to the market that interest rates would be low for a long time, encouraging companies to invest, to borrow money cheaply. Uh, Of course, it turns out that was wrong. That was a wrong assumption. So when people say, oh, you know, uh, Phil Lowe got it a bit wrong when he said interest rates would stay low till 2024 and he shouldn't have said that, it wasn't just that he said they would stay low. It's that this bond buying program sent an incredibly strong signal to the market that the Reserve Bank believed rates would be low for such a long time uh, because they were buying effectively this idea. Uh, And it gives confidence investors that if they bought bonds, they could sell them later back to the Reserve Bank because the Reserve Bank was buying bonds at the higher price, right? So yes, the Reserve Bank under Phil Lowe has lost billions of dollars. Um, is it a problem? Well, look, it's a it's a problem in that the Reserve Bank got its assumptions so wrong. It's not a problem because they will hold those bonds to maturity and interest rates will likely change again. We're already seeing in China cuts to the interest rates there. Um, inflation in the US is down to 4%. Uh, if we continue to track as we have done the US, our interest rate, our uh, inflation will drop over the coming months as well. And then interest rates will likely be cut again as well. So, uh, is it a problem? It's not a great outcome. It's not exactly the way I think Phil Lowe would have wanted that to go. Uh, but look, as long as they hold the bonds and the uh, economy stabilizes, uh, that will probably not be a huge problem. Interesting to note, uh, Jim Chalmers has opened an inquiry into JobKeeper. Of course, the majority of that borrowing, the majority of that loss from the Reserve Bank was to fund JobKeeper. Uh, you can check out online how you can make an online submission to that. I think it's something like JobKeeper Review at um, AustralianGovernment.gov.au. Anyway, Google. Uh, JobKeeper review, and you'll find the page. Uh, we've got another question here about uh, the Reserve Bank. 
saying, when the pandemic was on, businesses were suffering, and I thought, when this is over, prices will go up to make up for their lower takings now. Is this what has caused higher prices, therefore inflation? Is it that simple? Thank you for your question. The simple answer is no, that's not what's happened. Um, during the pandemic, actually, a number of companies had quite high um, uh, profits, funnily enough, partly because the Reserve Bank uh, created its bond buying scheme and gave the Commonwealth so much money that the Commonwealth was able to pump into the economy. So you saw some really strange things, right? Like people's superannuation went up 20% during the pandemic, for example, and then went down 1% uh, like last year. So uh, in terms of the inflationary side of it, it's not a question of uh, companies trying to make up losses that they had during the pandemic because very few companies actually had losses during the pandemic. Not everyone, but there's never a circumstance where every company is profitable all the time. Uh what you're seeing now is a combination of uh, supply, demand, and profiteering. So on the goods side of things, a lot of our goods are imported from overseas. Obviously, China had a much longer lockdown period. Uh, there are implications with the Ukrainian war, uh, or the war in Ukraine, I should say, uh, and there are uh, implications around the around fuel. Some weird stuff around global markets and fuel, Australia shouldn't be as uh, exposed to global fluctuations in fuel because we have so much gas, but we are. So until those policy settings change, that's where we are. Uh, and of course, we're seeing profiteering. So we're seeing, uh, we are seeing companies, uh, grocery companies are a good example where they are jacking up prices because there's an assumption that prices will be higher. Uh, and of course, we're seeing service. Uh, prices being higher because there has been uh, such low levels of unemployment. Uh, companies are charging more for their skilled workers, even though they're not necessarily passing those fees on to workers as wage increases. So there's a whole series of things there. There's not a kind of like catch up going on um, for most in most of the economy, that's not really what's happening. In fact, in some parts of the country during the pandemic, we saw businesses opening up uh, on the back of JobKeeper payments, uh, increased JobSeeker payments as well. So in some parts of the country, there was more money in the economy uh, than there is now, which is a very kind of strange set of circumstances. But thank you for your question. It's a good one uh, because it's, a, it's something I'm sure a lot of people have thought about well, if companies lost money then, maybe they're trying to make up the difference now. That's not generally what's going on. Uh, we've got uh, another question here about the Reserve Bank. Uh, it's the mission of the Reserve Bank to keep inflation at a certain level. And from what I understand, raising or lowering interest rates are the only lever they have to pull. Is this correct? And if so, is it fair to level criticism at the bank as as an institution. If this is indeed the case, shouldn't we be being critical of government for not giving the RBA more tools? Interesting point. Good question. Um, now, uh, it's not the only tool uh, because, as I've just said, the RBA can do other things. It can issue bonds. Uh, it also controls the payment systems. So the RBA is also an incredibly influential organisation. So it can say to government, 
the sorts of things it needs to see in order to not increase interest rates. There's a lot of politics going on at the moment with the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank governor's term, seven-year term, is due to expire in September. We saw the review of the Reserve Bank, which recommended the interest rate setting process be taken away from the board, which is currently made up predominantly of uh, people from the business lobby, quite frankly. Uh, very few who have an economics background, very few who have any kind of labour market background either, uh, and put into a special committee. The Reserve Bank has got one of these uh, kinds of bodies already uh, in place, uh, which is uh, a body that is responsible for uh, looking at uh, looking at uh, payment and financial stability, so how the payment systems work. Uh, it's a it's a like a subcommittee. It has that responsibility. So there are other levers that can be pulled. Of course, the Reserve Bank is also uh, the lender of uh, money to other banks, to Commonwealth Bank, the big four banks, so on and so forth. So yes, could it have more tools? Uh, it's hard to know what tool you would give it. Uh, of course, fiscal policy plays a role in inflation as well. Uh, but we also need to think about the ideological framework in which these decisions are made, right? And who pays is, is basically the question. So at the moment, the Reserve Bank goes, look, we're going to increase interest rates because mortgage holders and large companies with large amounts of debt they are going to they're going to pay they're going to wear the cost of bringing down inflation and the idea is theoretically that for companies those high, higher interest rates will encourage them to lower prices to sell more stuff right that's the theory it doesn't quite work like that in australia because of the way our debts are structured uh, household debt is the largest uh, debt in terms of a per capita situation then companies then governments most other countries around the world is the other way around. Governments have the most debt, then companies, then households. So it's a it's a bit of a strange circumstance. Uh, could we give them more tools? I really, I don't know what more tools we could give them. Uh, they've been told they've got to consider full employment. Uh, so that's uh, something they're going to struggle with because at the moment they're actually pretty well set up to create unemployment. So, yeah, look, I'm critical of the Reserve Bank because of the framework through which they make those decisions. Uh, I appreciate they're not the only uh, influencer on our economy. And you'll notice that when we talked about the budget uh, a few episodes ago, I talked about why having a surplus was actually important in the Commonwealth budget because a surplus in neo-Keynesian economics is one of the indicators of taking money out of the economy rather than stimulating it more. So, yes, the government does. governments do have roles to play in this as well. It's not just the Reserve Bank, uh, but so do companies, right? Uh, which sort of brings me to my next question because it's a good question about productivity. Uh, so. 
Productivity is a key driver, right? And the Reserve Bank has talked about productivity. We need more productivity. Now, it's interesting the Reserve Bank talks about productivity and at the same time it's putting up interest rates because one of the key drivers of productivity is capital productivity. Now, putting up interest rates can inspire capital productivity because, of course, if money is more expensive, you want to use it better because you've got to get those returns and you can't kind of invest in such marginal projects. But it can also make it harder if you're needing to invest in equipment uh, or new forms of capital, new technology, whatever it might be, to create more productive workforces. So the question that was put to me uh, here is, uh, I've never understood this requirement for increased productivity. Does it mean one train driver driving two trains at once or just driving faster so she can drive more trips? Does it mean a childcare worker having eight instead of four children to look after? In many jobs, it is nonsensical. And yeah, absolutely. If you think about productivity in the way that it's pitched in the media, then yes, it's a nonsensical idea. Productivity is generally measured as a per capita or slash GDP, right? So how many hours, uh, how much money per hour do people generate in the economy? Uh, how, how much money uh, per dollar of investment is generated in the economy? There's sorts of kind of rough measures that get used to talk about productivity. No, it doesn't mean one train driver driving two trains, um, but what it might mean is that uh, we need an extra track so that we can have more trains. That would be uh, an increase in productivity if there is demand. You know, so if you've got a situation where you know every train is full, uh, we can't get uh, freight trains going on the line, then adding a track would increase national productivity. Uh, in terms of something like services with something like childcare uh, or early childhood education, it might mean uh, you've got to build larger facilities. You've got to have facilities that are more uh, capital intensive initially so you can have more rooms, so you can have uh, better uh, allocation of resources. Something like housing, we talked about density. I've talked about density on this show. That's another classic example. The, the more dense the housing, usually the more productive uh, application of that capital has been. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kind of nuances to productivity. Uh, it gets used really uh, broadly. It gets used really uh, wrongly uh, a lot of the time. And of course, there are different parts to productivity. There's the labor productivity, that is the contribution that workers make. Uh, there is the capital productivity, that is the contribution the money makes. And there is this thing called multi-factor productivity, which is a sort of, you know, the magic of bringing it all together, the improvement in process, uh, what happens when you get new technology with well-skilled workers uh, and proper investments uh, coming together. <laughs> That's what multi-factor productivity is. Australia, by the way, has had a uh, productivity problem in capital for a very, very long time. Capital in this country tends to move towards very, in, very unproductive forms of investment. So we will send money to things that are well-established rather than creating new, more productive 
uh, ways of working, uh, whether that be through increased uh, robotics or AI investments and training people, right? The US, you know, parts of the US, they have these cultures of uh, investing heavily in new forms of technology and then the people to do that, to use that technology to be more productive. It's one of the reasons why the US is often used as a benchmark for productivity and countries are often measured against the United States in terms of our, our productivity. But it's a really good question, right? Because if you think about productivity in the way it often gets talked about in the media, you're probably very confused because it does sound like you need you need one worker to drive two trains. Well, we need more train tracks. We need uh, more facilities. We need investments in new technology. We need to train people to be able to add additional value in their jobs. Uh, that that's what really drives productivity in the modern economies of the world. Uh, the old-fashioned way of uh, well, we just have to get people to work more hours. Uh, or do more in less time, that that thinking is very outdated. Sadly, still uh, is very much ingrained in a lot of the way Australia thinks about productivity, Australian businesses this is, and Australian media this is. But the reality is it's actually what we do with capital now that's so much more important uh, and how we train people. These are very, very important uh, ways of improving productivity. I want to thank everybody who sent me questions. They're fantastic questions, really uh, interesting and insightful uh, questions. Please, if you have questions you want me to try and answer, if you think I'm wrong, let me know. You can email me at theweekonwednesday at gmail.com. You can also check us out on Facebook and on Twitter. And, of course, we do have our Buy Me A Coffee page. That's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday where you can get the episodes emailed to you along with additional links, stories, uh, things of interest. Uh, And if you can contribute to helping us grow our audience, we very much appreciate it. We're so close to a million downloads now. It's incredible. Your support has made it happen. So, Congratulations to everyone who sent me a question. Congratulations to everyone who has made this show a success. Remember to like, share, comment, and don't forget to join me on Wednesday when I will be joined by Van Battam for the week on Wednesday. And until then, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.